91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Hold the Line, A Guide to Defending Democracy is a document that came out this summer. It was penned by a group of authors in response to concerns about this year's general election and what may come during the time frame between the day after the election and the presidential inauguration. KBCS's Martha Baskin spoke with Hardy Merriman, one of the authors of Hold the Line. Hardy Merriman is president and CEO of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. The U.S. has hundreds of years of experience in election administration, as you and co-authors write, but this year's election is testing that experience as no other election has done before. The reasons may be obvious, the, the Trump era and the president's continuing, but unsubstantiated claims that mail-in voting is ripe for fraud, along with a pandemic that has more than 25 states expanding access to vote by mail. Can you summarize why you saw the need for this guide? Sure, absolutely. And Martha, thank you for having me on, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. One thing before I comment, I'll just mention I'm going to speak in my independent and personal capacity today. And in that capacity, simply as as a concerned citizen living in the United States, For the last four years, uh, I've seen an authoritarian style of leadership in uh, Donald Trump that has reminded me of leaders that I've looked at around the world. Uh, My work for nearly two decades has focused on pro-democracy and human rights movements around the world that are often using nonviolent tactics like strikes and boycotts and non-cooperation and many other nonviolent actions to fight authoritarianism. And so looking around the world and seeing how vulnerable democracies are In certain circumstances, when you have authoritarian style leaders, some of the moves that Trump has made have been eerily familiar and very concerning. Hold the Line came about after June 1st, when uh, Trump ordered the military to attack nonviolent demonstrators outside of Lafayette Square in Washington, DC. And it was at that point, I absolutely knew I had to write something. And I was very fortunate to meet my three co-authors, Ankara Stana, Mariam Navid, and Kifa Shah. And over the course of several months, we wrote Hold the Line, and it's, it's been really excellent to see how many people have responded to it and are now using it. Indeed, indeed. And you got promotion of it this summer, I believe, in um, several outlets. The guide is divided into two stages, pre-November 3rd and between the 3rd and Inauguration Day. As the hour draws near, I'd like to focus on the second stage. There are three possible scenarios that Trump and other elected officials at the state or local level may try to cross. Can you lay them out? And how could President Trump lose the election and stay in power? Sure. So, you know, we've all seen in the the articles in the last uh, month or two or more uh, talking about disturbing scenarios that could happen, various breakdowns of our institutions or violation of norms or violation even of, of, of laws that could happen. And one of the problems is that those articles don't give you a lot of sense of what you can do about it as an ordinary or everyday person. And so Hold the Line is very much about, yes, we look into those scenarios, but really we're focused on what people can do about it. And there's a great deal. Um, But just to go back to the scenarios, I mean, the first is simply that election day results are ambiguous. We're not sure who won and President Trump declares victory anyway. Um, This seems certainly not unlikely. Uh, You know, this year we have a a massive number of mail-in ballots. It's anticipated that they will trend blue. So it's entirely possible that the final count will show Joe Biden winning. 
uh, but that the election day count will not show that because as more absentee ballots and mail-in ballots are counted, that could tip the scale. So that being the case, uh, Trump has every sort of incentive uh, if he doesn't care about democracy to simply declare victory on election day and then try to prevent ballots from being counted, mail-in ballots that he thinks will trend blue. So that's one possible scenario. Uh, another is simply major irregularities in voting, in the count um, that need to be investigated and may not be. And so this could be take many forms and it could be a result of foreign interference or hacking. It could be the result of corrupt officials. It could be the result of who knows, <laughs> voter suppression, intimidation, all kinds of things. But if the election is closed and there's a lot of such incidents and they're not being properly investigated, that sets us up for a really contentious post-election period. And then the third is actually a fairly clear Biden victory in which President Trump doesn't respect the results because he alleges widespread fraud without any evidence. He's already telegraphed that this is a route he might take by his many comments casting doubt on the legitimacy or, or accuracy of mail-in ballots, when in fact, experts continually tell us that that is, not <laughs> that is not a grounded view. That's not a view supported by evidence. So those are the three base scenarios. And within that, there's enormous variation. I mean, you could see potential of election violence that the likes of which we haven't seen in generations in this country. Uh, you could see, based on President Trump's past conduct, attempting to inflame this kind of violence. You could see court injunctions. I mean, there will definitely be court fights, but you could see court injunctions to try to stop ballot counting. You could potentially see state legislatures and governors not agree on what the results mean, even in their particular state, and try to submit two competing slates of electors to the U.S. Congress to try to figure it out. There are so many ways that things can get confusing and go awry particularly when what we've seen with President Trump is someone who really doesn't constrain himself when he wants something. He has shown that he's willing to use the full power of his position to try to get what he wants. That respect for process <laughs> and, and law and rules uh, versus just trying to get the outcome he wants are not separable in his mind. The outcome that he wants will dictate his actions more than anything that might constrain someone else. And this is where the public needs to step up and what Hold the Line was really all about. You discuss many strategies to ensure that all votes are counted and irregularities investigated. All of them involve what you call power, discipline, and unity. Can you put these words in context? Sure. So, you know, my work focuses on civil resistance movements around the world. And over the last 10 years, there's been a real growth of studying of these movements and what the scholarship shows consistently is that nonviolent pressure through, again, strikes, boycotts, non-cooperation, lots of other nonviolent tactics, this is bottom-up pressure from ordinary and everyday people, is one of the most powerful democratizing influences worldwide. In fact, if you want to try to get democracy from an authoritarian country, bottom-up civil resistance has the single best prospects of creating that change compared to any other, compared to any other means. And consistent with this, civil resistance has also proven to be the single strongest means by which authoritarianism is challenged. So when people engage in nonviolent tactics in strategic and organized ways, they actually can exert enormous force, right? We're seeing right now in the country of Belarus, uh, the 26-year rule of Alexander Lukashenko be challenged by a civil resistance movement. 
we saw last year the reign of Omar al-Bashir, one of the 21st century's most brutal autocrats, ended by a civil resistance movement that was led by women in Sudan. In our own country, we've seen the women's suffrage movement, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, and even, you know, just in the last summer, some of the largest nonviolent demonstrations and mobilizations in this country's history. So, you know, when institutions are weak and not holding uh, power holders accountable, traditionally civil resistance is what people do. And it has proven to be incredibly powerful and effective at actually strengthening institutions, uh, ensuring rights, and ensuring democracy as well. So the, the guide also notes that the impact of civil resistance can surprise people who think that power resides exclusively with those at the top. Perhaps this is before the Black Lives Matter movement of this summer for young people who've not um, known about the power of civil disobedience in the past. But the deeper truth you also write is that power holders depend on direct obedience and cooperation of a large number of people. So that's what you're challenging the public to rethink. Absolutely. I mean, the conventional view of power that we get from the way history is told from the way most institutions run from both their news and entertainment media is that there are these people at the top who have special positions and status or, or wealth and that they're power holders and basically the rest of us are onlookers. I mean, that's communicated directly uh, or implicitly constantly. <laughs> So it's not surprising that a lot of people feel a sense of powerlessness. We're sort of watching and confused and overwhelmed as the country seems to slip and slide into all kinds of directions that we don't approve of. But the good news is that actually throughout history, again, organized people who are unified, who have a strategy, who are applying nonviolent tactics are incredibly powerful, right? Our buying patterns and our behavior patterns and our social patterns really create the status quo. Millions and millions of acts of cooperation and passivity or obedience or active consent are what create society. And so if we shift our buying patterns, if we shift our work patterns, if people do work slowdowns or strikes, if people simply say, look, democracy works for elections, we ultimately get to decide. And if you don't respect our decision, we're not recognizing your illegitimate authority and we're not going to cooperate. That's incredibly powerful. It's been proven again and again that actually it can create nonviolent force that can cause autocrats to have to leave power. Now, just to be clear, in the United States, we're not an autocracy. We're a democracy. Our democracy is imperfect. Certain people experience a lack of rights and certainly a lack of democratic uh, promise in this country. There's a lot that needs to improve and a lot of work that needs to happen, but there's still a lot that's worth saving. And an autocratic style leader will try to erode what we have and we need to fight to uphold it. So then a good part of the guide goes into how to take action. You outline steps for communities to establish an election protection group and familiarize themselves with power holders and create a hold the line team. Can you flesh that out a bit? So we wanted to write hold the line so that anyone who's concerned about the election could find something in it for them. We weren't trying to write for people who are necessarily really experienced activists or really experienced organizers, though actually we do want to reach them too, but we weren't writing only for them. We wanted anyone to be able to pick it up, even people who are concerned, but may not have, you know, sort of built up that activist muscle. And this may be the first time that they're really um, organizing. And so part three provides steps to create your own election protection team. And we provide sort of a four meeting process to do it. And each meeting has agendas and activities and sort of here's how you set it up. And the emphasis is a few things. First of all, find a few people that you know and trust that you feel you could organize with. 
you don't need to be experts, but you do need to be able to work together and talk about your concerns about the election. What would, what, what post-election scenarios are you concerned about? What could you do? And start to just start those conversations. In your second meeting, we lay out a plan for power mapping. Power mapping is basically where you look at key individuals or institutions in your community and try to figure out where the power is. And actually we, we bring power mapping to the state level because we want people to know from the county level all the way up to the governor, secretary of state, who's responsible for the elections in their states, right? Donald Trump by himself does not get to decide the outcome of the election. The ballots get counted in the states. We have a very decentralized election system in this country. So people who may have a significant sway over how the election runs, are people we may not even know. I mean, how many people know who their county clerk is or their secretary of state or various other figures who can have a significant impact on elections administration? We want people to identify them. We want people to know on November 4th and even before <laughs> who those people are. And then the question is trying to figure out, okay, who seems committed to upholding democracy here and who's giving signs that they're not? right? Who's starting to waver? Who's showing that they may not be as committed to really making voting accessible, to really counting every ballot and not arbitrarily trying to discard them, to really applying the rules fairly? And if you find people who are not, to begin to pressure them. And we actually released a campaign document called the Commitment to Uphold Democracy, where you can make four clear demands of your elected officials. We lay them out um, about how they should uphold democracy and ask them to commit to them. And those are? I mean, I'll paraphrase here, uh, but the first is that every vote should be counted. The second is, is that they, these officials should report in a timely and accurate way on the elections process and counting process and results. The third is that uh, irregularities and voter suppression and um, intimidation need to be investigated and promptly remedied. And the fourth is that the results need to be respected consistent with their constitutional oath of office. So doing that kind of mapping and figuring out who these people are is really powerful. You suddenly have a sense of, aha, I see where I can focus. In the third meeting, we get into how you can plan tactics to build your team, uh, build your base of support, and also put pressure on power holders. And then the fourth meeting is sort of like continual assessment as the situation evolves to see what you want to do. So those are some steps that anyone can take. And we really think that, you know, again, so much of what's going to happen over the next, I don't know, what is it now, you know, 80 or 90 days is going to take place in the states. It's really important that we organize in our communities, whether they're red, purple, or blue, that we are ready. And that's part of what Hold the Line tries to do. And then just lastly, one more point, only 3.5% of the population need to be involved. A groundbreaking study published in the Harvard Gazette that examined over 106 nonviolent movements around the world found this, that when 3.5% of the population visibly participated in the movement, the movement always won. Yeah, that, so that, that statistic comes from the Nonviolent and Violent Campaign and Outcomes data set, which was created by Dr. Erica Chanowitz at Harvard University. And that is a remarkable finding. I mean, basically, when you look at nonviolent campaigns around the world, many of whom were struggling against non-democratic or authoritarian rule, that with, I think, only two exceptions over the last, what is it, nearly 100 years, when 3.5% of the population visibly mobilized during the peak of those nonviolent movements or nonviolent campaigns, those campaigns won. And many won with only 2% of public participation. And so that's a powerful number. It shows just how powerful even 
a relatively small amount of highly committed people can be in terms of making change. But I also think it comes with a caveat. And the caveat is this. If 3.5% of the population is engaging in visible nonviolent action, chances are they, that's just the tip of the iceberg. A very large additional portion is engaging in non-visible forms of participation. For example, if you're boycotting a product, people can't see that participation. You're simply choosing not to buy something, but you are exerting pressure. Or if you're holding meetings in your home, that may not be visible to people, but it can be very important. So there's lots of tactics that researchers can't directly physically observe. And the second thing is that there are plenty of people who are playing other support roles. <laughs> For example, if someone's out protesting, someone else may, might be at home. That's also a very important role. So my guess is, is that although 3.5% of observed participation, that that is an incredibly powerful number and threshold in the, in the academic research, it's probably also an indicator that these movements have much larger bases of support above 50%. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. And if people are interested, they can download Hold the Line at holdthelineguide.com. Thanks again. That was Martha Baskin speaking with Hardy Merriman, a co-author of Hold the Line, a guide to defending democracy. A special thanks to Adria McGee for help with editing that interview. If you're interested in listening to more stories by KBCS, you can visit our website at kbcs.fm or subscribe to KBCS podcasts anywhere you source them.